out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week is going to be the turn of Mark Saunders, the record producer. As you know, we had part one. This is going to be part two. That's normally how these things work. Um, And because there was just so much, we got up to the 90s. And I was fascinated because there was still lots more to talk about. We just finished with him uh, discussing and uh, going into detail, a slight detail about the farm. And uh, we pick up again on that very interesting subject of the farm. And then we go into the world that is probably a bit of the cure, tricky, Nana Cherry. Anyway, sit back, relax, enjoy it. Mark, tell us more. Tell us about the farm. Well, I did did another farm. I ended up mixing pretty much a whole album. I can't remember what the name of the album was. Um, at West Side Studios, which is the studio I started off in. Um, what the heck was the album? Um, I'll have to look that up. But then, but I think in the meantime, we did one, we did a cover of Don't You Want Me Baby. Right. The human song, which was great fun. I, I mean, I'm a huge, human league fan i can't remember whose idea it was to do it whether it's mine or the band's but they ended up coming down to just do that one song from from liverpool and um i remember being you know it was like 11 o'clock start i'm in the studio waiting band aren't there you know typical the, the farm um as i realized that you know i think i i think maybe it was after because i think i was used to the fact that they they won't show up until pub shut or something. But um, and then somebody, oh, somebody said, oh, the, the, the band's arrived. And I thought, oh, great. And then they never came in the studio. They went, they parked the car, parked the car in the studio, studio car park and went straight to the pub. They didn't even yeah. bother coming. And I, you know, I'm recording a new song. It's not like I'm mixing. I need them, you know, to start. So they pretty much wasted it. The whole day, I think. Because it, it's interesting, because I did an interview with the lead singer quite recently. And oh, I forgot his name. Peter Houghton? Pete Houghton or something like Houghton, that? Houghton, that's it, yeah. Coming yeah. from Norfolk, you try not to say Houghton and sound too much like a too local. But he, what was quite interesting, because he did mention that when the band started to become more kind of well-known, famous and had more money, Basically, the the band would just never be around. They would just be going off shopping and buying new bathrooms, kitchens, houses. He would be left trying to put together an album. And, you know, like, is anybody else interested or you just want the goodies? And it's a bit like, we just want the goodies. It's like, great. And and then eventually, you know, it's like, actually, I can't do this anymore. So let's forget it. So that was quite interesting, the life of a band. Yeah. Um, They had a crazy manager, too. Their manager was more rock and roll than the band. And he, he I mean, I, I think he was doing loads of coke. He had this thing about biting people on the nose. Like, and I thought, oh, you know, that's, I'm sure he doesn't do that often. But I saw him do it. He walked into, I think we went into a restaurant or something, and he went up to an A&R guy and like just bit him on the nose. It was just like the most insane behavior that you could only get away with, you know, without charges being pressed it would only happen in the music business wouldn't it i mean it's just God. ridiculous it's, it's, it's weird when someone tries to i don't know kiss you on the cheek and then they try and kiss you slightly on the lips not in a weird way but you think oh like could we could we just 
to shake hands, actually. But Biden on the nose, that's one I have never heard before. It was not, it was not a tentative little bite either. It was like quite serious. <laughs> uh, the Farm Band albums, let's see which, which ones I did. Um, it annoyed me for a long time on um, Spotify. If you went to Spartacus, I think it is, is the album with... Um, the hits. The hit. Oh, is that, is that a best of? Um, they had the wrong, totally wrong version of Groovy Train on it. They had a remix on there instead of my version. And I thought, well, that's shit, because it wasn't a particularly brilliant remix. Um, oh, Love, See No Colour was the album that I mixed. And it's not a... It's not a there's some amazing music on it, actually. I mean, I think it is slightly let down. I mean, it's quite adventure. It, it was like them being quite serious. And it's quite, this, I really like the tracks, but it kind of gets let down by his vocals a bit, I think. Yes. He, he was great at, you know, fun stuff, where it's not, but when he, they're trying to be serious and have serious messages and stuff. But, but musically, it was pretty great. Oh, yeah. So when, so when you worked with a band like the Heartthrobs, who I remember well, they did a first album, Cleopatra Grip. Was that the album that you worked on or their follow-up? I only did one remix. Right. And that, that was an odd experience because, well, I loved that track and I really liked my remix. But when I, I, I was remix, remix, remixing it in the studio and the two top guys from the label came in and um, I can't remember the name of the... Uh, that was one little engine, know. wasn't it? Yes, yeah, so Derek, Derek Burkett, I think his right, name is. Yes, from... He's like the main man, you know. So they came in and they were like, oh, I just wanted to stop by, see how you're getting on. And then they just sat there and Derek sat in a chair right next to me at the desk and the other guy sat behind me at the back of the studio and they never said a word. And I thought, oh, fuck, they hate it. <laughs> um, honestly, I was like sweating, thinking there's no, they gave no feedback whatsoever. And there was no like tapping your foot, looking like you were enjoying it. It was just, they were like motionless. And, um, and then eventually after what seemed like a decade, they got up and said, all right, see ya. And I thought, oh, fuck, you know, they, they've blown, I've blown it. And the next day I called my manager and I said, I think, I, have you any heard anything from the label? And because I think they just hated it. They just, you know, I felt like, I felt terrible. And then like a day later, she calls back and she goes, they love it. They just didn't want to disturb you. They just wanted to watch you work. I'm like, oh, fuck's sake they could have told me that you know? yes quite a tricky process actually because i can remember because i did an interview with the drummer but that was in mark two of the band because they were two sisters dating the two musicians it was not going to end well was it on the first album uh, abba that's abba story isn't it that is abba. and they were yeah. i didn't realize they were the daughters of pete Ritas from the echo and the bunny men really yes but they that's a long time ago. How old? So that was 92, because I sort of, I didn't know that. And then the drummer said, yeah, they were the, the, the daughters of Pete from Echo. And it's like, oh, shit, I should have done some more research, shouldn't I? Well, they must have been like 
what was Pete like 12 when he had them then or something? I mean, that seems like Echo and the Bunnymen were like an 80s band. So he must have been in his 20s in the 20s in the 80s. So how old were these kids? That doesn't, does that really add up? Wait a minute. They were formed in 80. Wait a minute. Rose, yeah. So Rachel, yeah. So Rose and Rachel DeFritus are the, yeah, the sis, oh, are the sisters. Oh, shit. Sorry. Are the sisters of Pete. Not okay. <laughs> I was going to say, there must have been like two and <laughs> Right. Christ. That's, yeah, sorry. Bad information then, isn't it? <laughs> um, which one's Pete, the drummer, or...? He was the drummer. Oh, I actually, yeah, when I moved to this area in the Cotswolds, um, I, one of the first houses I looked at was him selling up, moving from Stroud back to London. Um, I, I walked into this house and it's just like turned into a studio. It's like, oh, it's like, great. Look at all this stuff. I'll just take this and the stuff, please. <laughs> so then so after you know that period the early 90s obviously we'd had sort of the grunge we'd had the dance stuff and you'd obviously done the farm then we had the grunge period and then the sort of the pop stuff starts to come back with Britpop so what happens next with you because you'd been working with Robert Smith with The Cure hadn't you and people- yeah uh, I think it was like 91 I mixed Wish which was the you know the biggest thing that really I'd ever been involved with I mean that uh, that sold 750,000 copies in the first week, which you wouldn't get these days much. Um, and it didn't even get to number one either. It, I think Def, this, that was in the States and Def Leppard beat them to number one by selling a million copies in the first week. Right. Which is pretty tremendous. Amazing. Um, so, um, so then, then I worked with Ian McCulloch and Bunny Men on a solo album, and that took me from um, mixing more. Uh, yeah, actually, I was a, I was kind of getting a bit tired of just doing mixes, and then I worked with Ian McCulloch, um, like co-producing his record, um, which was difficult because of his habits. Right. Um, when you're working on one of those kind of projects. And you're thinking, do you ever sort of think, God, oh, the material here isn't that great, but I can't really say any much. I'm not saying on that occasion, but on some people's, I just wonder if you're thinking, this isn't, this is quite hard work because there isn't that much here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think generally in my career, uh, I should have spoken up more about that kind of stuff. Like, I think I, I let, I want, you know, I didn't want to be the bad guy so much, um, but I probably should have been a bit more of a bad guy and go, actually, this song shouldn't be on the record, you know, or something like that. Um, I've, I think now I'm more, um, although I'm doing less less production and more mixing, but, um, you know, now I'm telling people that they need to, you know, up their game a bit. I yeah. mean, I've just been mixing this record and, I, I wrote to the guy and said, this is not in a fit state to mix. You need to sort out your drums and your, you know, you can't really give it to me like that. It's not ready. It's not fair, you know, to, you're paying me to mix, but you'll be giving me a bunch of stuff that you haven't made any decisions on. So that's not mixing. That's, that's production. Yes. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I think I, 
you know, I've been in plenty of situations where I haven't I haven't thought the material was that that great, and mm. I probably should have been uh, a lot tougher on the band. Because um, I, I don't know if it was this particular documentary with Jimmy Iovine doing you two probably Joshua Tree saying you still haven't done any real, you know, there is no real singles here and, you know, them having to sort of, there's obviously a lot of tension in having to sort of tell a band that and then sort of yeah. them having to go and record it. But then occasionally something brilliant happens. I just wondered when, you you know, you as a person have to sort of move in and say, you know, those kind of comments, which must be a little bit diplomatic, especially if someone's, you know, if there's drinking and occasional drugs involved as well. And then someone, you know, the, like, you know, the famous drugs moment where someone's saying, you know, sprinkle some fairy dust on it and you're thinking, it's going to take more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fairy dust is, doesn't always cut it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I can't imagine Jimmy Iovine being, being just um, diplomatic. I, I worked with um, Alison Moyer and she told me stories about Jimmy Iovine. It was pretty horrendous. He... He, t he, well, I mean, now he's a billionaire, isn't he? Because um, he bought beat. Um, anyway, so he, when she was working with him, they, they had a session booked for strings, you know, and doing string sessions, hugely expensive. Um, when I did, I worked on an album with a brand, uh, a new band, and we got a budget for 43,000 quid or dollars um, to do strings on three songs, and we flew to LA to do it and um so anyway he's there's a big session booked and the string players they work on a you know like a two-hour session or something if you go one minute over you pay for the whole thing again you know and that's a lot of money because if you've got like you know 40 piece orchestra or something you're talking tens of thousands of dollars um and um he was late he was really late and he came in and Alison was like, you know, what the hell? We've got this string player sitting here and you're late. And anyway, they did the session and afterwards he turned to her, he got right in her face and he said, don't you ever fucking talk to me like that again. And she was like, holy, you know, cause he's, he's a bit of a like mobster guy, you know? And then, and then she said that he's in, in the studio. He, he, uh, it was like dinner time and the assistant engineer, you know, usually comes around with a book of menus in the studio and goes, you know, do you want to pick something? We'll get it in. And and Jimmy and Ivan said, uh, I don't have the time to make decisions like that. Just just order five meals from the top five restaurants in this area and I'll pick one and I'll throw the rest away. <laughs> oh, you dick. You can't make those uh, stories up, really, can you? No, no, you can't. I mean, that is the kind of behaviour, you know, as an assistant, I I worked with people who who had you know had that kind of attitude, or even I was remembering there was an A and R man uh, called Malcolm Dunbar, who I think he ended up being A and R for the U two, but he was with Lloyd Cole and the Commotions, and when I was an assistant, he used to come see my bosses quite a bit, and the first time I went. To, the doorbell rang. I could see him on the monitor. Okay, I'll go and let him in. And I opened the door and he walked straight past me. He does not speak to me at all. Doesn't even look at me. Which I then real, you know, after that happened a few times, I realized I'm not worthy of him to look, to be looked at because I'm an assistant engineer. And which is insane because 
producers usually start off as assistant engineers. So at some point or other, if, if you're lucky, you're going to be in that position and people like Malcolm are going to be coming to talk to you. And it happened, you know, like a, a year or two later, uh, oh no, I was doing a mix for Lloyd Cole, my very first mix. I think we might have talked about that um, in the studio. And um, uh, he liked the mix. And I was just the assistant at the time. So my bosses gave me the job of mixing a B-side. And um, he liked it so much he asked to meet me. So I went to meet him. I went to Polydor Records and I was all excited, you know, that, that this guy wanted to meet me, even though he'd been a total arsehole to me the whole time. Um, and I sat outside the office and it was, I waited and waited and waited. And then Malcolm walked out the door. He, he kind of slightly glanced at me and walked straight past me carrying a box. And I sat there and thought, oh, I guess he'll be back in a minute. And he didn't come back. You know, half an hour later, I went up to the desk and I said, is Malcolm coming back? And, the, and she said, oh no, he's just left the company. I thought, what? I mean, he didn't even like, it didn't even occur to him to say, I'm sorry, I can't give you a meeting because I'm leaving the company. His box was all his stuff. And then um, about a year later after that, I'm doing a, a remix for, e Eka, uh, for um, Ian McCulloch. And he's the A&R man. And, and he, um, he calls up and he goes, I'd like to come down and meet you. We've never met, have we? He was a Scottish guy. And, and he came down and he was like, he was like my best mate, you know, it's like, oh, it's so great to meet you. You're doing some really great work. Oh, oh yeah. Couldn't get rid of the bastard. <laughs> you know, he was like, I'm trying to make a song and he wants to just chat and be like, wow, it's so great to meet you finally. I'm like, you complete asshole. <laughs> so. Yes. So then as we trip into, into the 90s, you do Tricky. So what was that experience like? Oh, my God. Well, that was a life-changing experience. Um, so I get a call. My manager says that, you know, Ireland Records want you to work with this guy, Tricky. And um, so I get sent two songs that they've already done, um, which he did with a guy called Howie B. Yes, and Howie B. Aftermath and Ponderosa. Two songs. And then, you know, I didn't know at the time, but Tricky had fallen out with Fallen out with them over credit. Fallen out with Howie, and um, they said they just they wanted an engineer. And I thought I was curious because I listened to that stuff, and it was nothing like I've ever worked on in my life. And I'm thinking, why the hell does he want to? Why is he picking me? You know, I just couldn't fathom it because it sounds really, you know, I'm like Mr. Pop. I, I'm trying to make things as pop as I can possibly make it because that's how I grew up, like listening to pop music. And um, so I went for a meeting at uh, uh, Ireland and he never showed up. I went back for another meeting at Ireland and he never showed up. And at that point I'm thinking, what's the point, you know? And then the A&R man said, well, go to his house because he'll. I know he's going to be there. If you want to meet him, go to his house. And I said, okay, I'll try that. And I went to his house and I, he opened the door for his, his flat in the, um, sort of north of Notting Hill, Kensal Rise, I think it was. Anyway, he, he opened the door and he's like, he's just such a character. I mean, he had, he had his head covered in like cream. He's got a shaved head, he's covered in cream. He's got a ring through his nose. 
and he's like, hello, Mark, with his fantastic <laughs> Bristol accent. You must be Mark. Come in. I love the cure. And, and he's like hyper, which is completely opposite of what I thought I'd, you know, after listening to Ponderosa and um, Aftermath, I'm thinking he's going to be like, hey, you know, man. But he's completely hyper. The opposite of what I'd expect. And he's really, in, and I realised that, oh, he, you know, because he, he picked me because he liked The Cure, but he's got an incredibly eclectic music taste. It's not what, you know, I would have pinned him down to be. Um, and and his whole flat is covered in vinyl on the floor. There's vinyl records. All, you're basically walking pretty much all the time on vinyl. There's no way to step around it. It's, it's vinyl interspersed with a few cups of old moldy tea, old moldy teacups with cigarette ends and, nice. and bliff ends stuck in. And he says, do you want a cup of tea? And you're like, nah, no, I'm all right, I think, you know. Yes. And so we end up um, doing the record and it's going to be done in his flat. And he's persuaded the record company to put a studio in. And so... You know, I'm thinking I'm just going along as an engineer, and it's not really much to engineer. There's a small 16-channel Mackie desk and uh, an ADAT recorder, you know, the digital tape recorder, which is pretty crappy. Good, sounded all right, but it's based on a VHS tape, which was really um, flimsy format. And uh, a microphone and a sampler and a computer that, didn't do audio, it was only MIDI. And um, so he said, all right, let's get going then. I want to sample that record. And he's pointing at records on the floor and that record. And I said, okay, great. And he went, I don't do anything. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I've got them to put all this gear in, but I don't know how any of it works. Um, and I was like, oh, all right, okay. So, so let me get straight. You want to sample that, okay. And then and you want to sample that. But are they in the same key and in the same tempo? He's like, I don't know. I just want to hear it. So I'm thinking, this sounds really bizarre. So anyway, so I sample a bit of the record he wants. So I was like, which bit do you want? Okay, this bit. So I put it in the sampler. And then I listen to the next bit. And it's completely different. There's no, there's no way on earth this, these two bits are going to fit. So I sample it. And I put them on, each one on a key. And then I press the two keys together and it sounds it sounds like you're in between two rehearsal rooms you know just cacophony of noise and tricky sitting there with a split nodding his head at a beat that doesn't ex exist in either record and he's going yes wicked isn't it and i said i'm like walking around going oh God, this is horrible. <laughs> and I and I try and tell him, and he's like, no, he's wicked. So out of desperation, I start twiddling around in the in the sampler and I like detune one or something, you know, trying to think. And then all of a sudden, something happens where it actually sounds all right. It it starts to work just completely randomly. Like you could hardly have predicted it. And he goes, I told you, didn't I? And, and that was that was it. I was just like, oh my God, that's crazy.
so it was, it was like I had to unlearn everything to work with Tricky. It was like it was like making going into a scrapyard and making a car out of what you could find that yes. not don't necessarily fit. And you can probably get it to drive, but it'll be really uncomfortable and unreliable. But it'll have character. It does because there is a track on there which I can remember going, "Wow, that is something else." So you must be able to remember this black steel from oh. Which is kind of, it's one of those ones when you hear it, it's like, God, I've got to listen to that again, because that's quite amazing. So what, how did that come together? Oh, that's a great example. I mean, that was an unusual one, um, because, uh, well, I, you know, they have to backtrack a bit. I mean, the, I realised that, you know, Tricky would, would have been happy with one beat, and hardly anything and nothing changing throughout the whole track. And that, that drove me nuts as, as like a Mr. Pop guy. So I was constantly fighting, trying to make things more interesting and adding things more musical, uh, like trying to get a musical hook in somewhere. And, and I realized that if I played anything in front of him on a keyboard, he'd say, no, nah, I don't like it. And so I couldn't do anything in front of him. So I would, you know, he had a very short attention span that we'd, we'd only do a burst of about three hours a day. And, um, and then he said he was too tired. So he'd leave and then I'd, I'd mess around. And the next day, I'd, you know, hopefully I'd get away with it because he hadn't seen me play and he might go, oh, that sounds, that sounds good. What's that? Or other times he would say, here, Mark, get me a sound on the keyboard. And I'd give him a keyboard sound and he would sit there and plonk his hands on it like a toddler and he'd sort of put his elbow on it and and it would be i'd be pacing up and down up behind him like oh god oh please stop <laughs> you know and then he'd listen to a bit bang and go wow that's wicked so then he'd go home and i'd strip out 97 percent of the notes and find two notes that actually work or two or three notes and make a riff out of it and then the next day he'd come in and go my keyboards is that my keyboard that sounds wicked that does <laughs> and um i'd like be like yeah and i you know i should have i should have set up that it was, i was going to get publishing on that record because i really you know if there's anything that's kind of hooky it's not not tricky um unless it's somebody else's record that we sampled yeah but any keyboard parts were basically me and and guitar um but anyway, so when we came to we um, Black Steel, he basically got he his ex girlfriend was Indian, and his ex girlfriend's mum still used to send him stuff on cassette, Indian music, and he had that. If the beginning of Black Steel has got this this, it's like a, it's not like a cool old Indian record. It's like a, like an eighties uh, Indian record, I think, and it was on cassette, and it was really like cassette to cassette it was hissy as anything and and he, we laid that down and then he wanted to to get um martina to um sing the words from it's a public enemy song isn't it uh, yeah. yeah um so and he couldn't even be bothered to write out the whole song so he just wanted oh she's like yeah just oh you just repeat that bit you know and um the other thing that i'd figured out with like Martina was absolutely brilliant. And 
the, their relationship was so super weird because they were a couple and um they were living together and but she hardly spoke and she was young i can't remember how, how old she was she's quite young but she to me she she kind of was like an old blues singer but you know like in her 80s she she had she seemed to have hardly any energy whatsoever and she shuffled her around like an old lady but then when she started singing it was amazing like the very first time we did a track i was absolutely blown away because she wasn't usually there to do the tracks tricky would just call her and go you come down we're you know need you to sing on something and she'd come in and she wouldn't practice anything they wouldn't work anything out tricky would just hand the lyrics and go go and sing that and she wouldn't sit and go okay let, let me listen to the track and sit there mm. and do what most singers do when they like mm, working out notes she just went in and i pressed play and record and it was phenomenal the first song we did was called struggling which was a really eerie creepy song and her vocal is phenomenal and she just sang through once and that was it that was the lead vocal without any any edits and then i said do you want to do another one she did another one and i used it as like a double track echoey bits in the background Blimey. and and that that happened on every single track and so after after that first track i realized that what i what i did was i just looped all the music for the that we had like two or three times and just press play and record and let it sing and not stop her and talk to her or anything and but nearly every single track the first stuff she did was brilliant there was no i can't remember any of it where she sounded like she was warming up or trying to figure out a melody the, the melodies came out of her absolutely effortlessly and with so much like character but she was the quietest singer I'd ever recorded. Um, she was on the other side of a not very thick wall in his flat. The microphone was in the kitchen and we were in like, what was the dining room, I guess. And um, one day she, she coughed because I had to crank the microphone up so loud to get any level from, from her. She'd be like, if you walked in the room, this is what she'd sound like. Got a letter from the government the other day opened it you know it was so yeah. quiet one day she coughed and it nearly took my head off it was the cough was like <laughs> incredibly loud and um i mean you could sort of hear her feet moving on the on the floorboards um so it was fantastic she was just amazing but i you know i i ended up giving her a lift somewhere once and then all of a sudden she started chatting to me um, about, oh, you know, I, I had a place to do study oceanography in um, San Diego. And I was thinking, wow, I didn't even know you could talk. <laughs> she <laughs> barely spoke. And, and she's, you know, like Tricky was a, a, was a, you know, a force, like a character. And, you know, I think she, he, she was just like um, sort of worn down by him a bit. But which, which really made the record yes. special that relationship yeah absolutely and then and then you have a big move don't you 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 leave the country and go to america the next year oh, can i just tell you about black steel though because that's yeah oh yeah sorry yes sorry so anyway yeah i mean there's a whole book to be 
you know, to be written about Tricky. But um, Black Steel was was a track that, so we put this Indian loop on, and then he, she went and sang, I got a letter from the government the other day. And that was it, Tricky was like, that's it, done, finished. Sounds wicked, and I'm thinking, there's not even any music on it. There's not. I think there was a couple of like weird noises looped, like meep, meep, and that was it. And and it was just like, well, wow, that's not very interesting for three and a half minutes or whatever. So anyway, we left it, and then we went out one night to Martina. Martina's brother, I think, was in a band or something. We went out to see them, and Tricky. Every time we went out, Tricky's like, I'm not going to get drunk tonight. And we get to the venue, go, what do you want? He go, have double brandy, please. And I'm like, oh, here we go. And um, so Tricky got completely plastered that night. And there was a band on before the one we were supposed to see. And I didn't really take much notice of them. Um, so I, I couldn't really remember much about them. But the next day, the manager called and said, um, I've, had a call, I've had a call from this band from somewhere up north. I mean, maybe Nottingham or somewhere like that. Um, saying that uh, Tricky invited them to play on the record. I'm like, really? Wow, I'll, I'll ask him when he comes in then. So Tricky comes in and I say, Tricky, did you invite a band to play on a record last night? He's like, no. I'm like, are you sure? Oh, wait a minute. I was talking to a band. Well, apparently you, you've invited them to play on the record. Oh, better get him down then. <laughs> so... So we have to book a prop because we're in my little studio. We're doing most of this either in his house and then we uh, moved to my small studio, uh, which didn't have a big live room. So we went to we booked a proper studio across the street um, and this band came down from Nottingham. Yet. And and then like the day before, Tricky's like, what are we going to do with this band then? And I said, I said, well, the only track that we've got that's really hasn't got much on it is um, uh, Black Steel. He's like, oh, all right then. So we get in there. This band comes down, and they it turns out they're like, they're like um, high energy techno band that is like the polar opposite of what Tricky is. But they're like in the live techno band. They play, they play like techno music, but with mostly real instruments, and they have a keyboard player that plays like distorted guitar sounds. And um, so we get in the, we get in the drum sounds. And Tricky's like totally bored. He's got no concentration span for like, you know, the fact that you've got to mic people up and do all that normal stuff and get sounds and headphone balances and all that. And he's totally bored. And as, I, as I'm doing, telling the drummer, to, can you just hit the toms so I can get sound on the toms? The drummer's going, boom, 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 just like he's not playing a rhythm or anything. And Tricky suddenly sit, perks up and goes, I oh, like that. Can you record that? And I'm thinking, oh no, he's going to want to use that, isn't he? <laughs> so, so we record and put that on DAP, and then we continue. And the band turned out to be brilliant because she's singing without any music. So she could have been completely out of tune, you know, pitch wise. It would have been really hard, but she must have like perfect pitch or something because they could start playing stuff to it and it, and it works. And they were, I said to them, you know, this is a bit of a sort of like uh, rap punk kind of track. Uh, and I said, can you kind of play? So 
basically I was telling them not to play like they normally do at all, just make it more punk. And they totally got into it. And we, we basically recorded a few takes of the band playing along. And I, and I was really excited about it. And Tricky was just like, no, oh, I don't like any of this stuff. And, um, and then when we finished, I was thinking, wow, this is fantastic material. And, and Tricky was like, I ain't going to use any of this. And, and I'd learned at that point not to say anything because that would only make it worse. So I was just like, okay. And then I went back to my studio, took the, took the stuff back to my studio. And then when he wasn't there, I put stuff together and, you know, just edited what we had and tried to make an arrangement where it's not all just them playing all the way through. And, and waited about two weeks before I played it to Tricky. And then one day I knew he buzzed to come in. So I just pressed play and he walked in and when he was playing, he's like, he walked in, he goes, what's that? That's brilliant. What is it? I said, it's black steel. Blimey, give me a microphone. And I put up a microphone and, and I can't remember. He only has a few words in it. Um, he just repeats a sentence about four times or something. And that was his, his uh, bit. And, and that was pretty much it. And, and I thought, well, this is, I just said, this is just rough, you know, um, just to give you an idea. And that was it. Nothing ever changed. Uh, so it was really, and I thought, you know, we need to clean up that cassette thing because it's so hissy and nasty at the front. Um, and, and that's how it ended up. It was just, you know, it was, it was so out from the rest of the album as well. There's nothing like it on the rest of the record. But it yeah. was the only that had any energy, really. Um, so it was fun from my perspective. And obviously Tricky is, you know, becomes part of the soundtrack of the, the great Britpop mid-90s kind of, um, yeah, world, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, so, so then, you know, when I, I went to see him live once and we were backstage and the phone rings, it's Denzel Washington. He's, he's talking to this guy and he puts the phone and he goes, that was, that was Denzel Washington. And he wants him to be in um, the fifth element or, uh, you know, I um, think it was Denzel. Yes. And, um, and then Bowie's backstage wants to pick, everybody wanted to be part of um, Tricky. Everyone, you know, I didn't, I didn't realize, I didn't know if it was good or not. I had no idea that we'd made an album that was uh, going to go anywhere. Yeah. Because I mean, there was nothing else like it, you know, later on, people would say to me, oh, what trip hop sample CDs did you use? And I'm like, well, there weren't any because that was, you know, that and Porter's Head, which was the same management company from Bristol as well. You know, um, we were making the first two real trip hop records at that time. Yeah. So there, there weren't any reference. So I, I thought, oh, you know, I don't know. This could be, this is a load of old crap, you know, really. I didn't, I didn't think it was going anywhere. But then the A&R man said, you know, you've made a critically acclaimed album, the album that's going to be criti critically acclaimed. And I was like, yeah, right. You know, and he was, he was dead right, though, when it came out. It was getting amazing reviews. Mm. And um, um, incidentally, Ireland tried to shaft, totally shaft me on the, on the money and the credit. But because... Um, because after my first day there, I 
I called my manager and I said, look, I'm not just engineering this. You know, Tricky doesn't do anything. I, I mean, he's got, he's, he knows what he wants to do, but he's, I'm putting it all together. I have to make it work. And so she, she arranged that I get production, get production and, and points on the record, you know, so percentage of the royalties. And, um, and they were like, yeah, 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 of course, of course, of course. And then I finished the record and they're saying, you've done an amazing job. You know, it's a critically going to be a critically acclaimed album. And the accounts department say, well, a guy that, all, that you arrange that with is, is too junior. We're not honoring that. And, and then I went straight off to work with Tricky and Nana Cherry together in Spain. Like a week after we finished the record, we went to Spain together um, to work with Nana. And um, uh, I did that whole record. I was in three months in Spain and my manager was arguing behind the scenes. She didn't want to tell me. Um, and um, Ireland were basically saying, no, no, we're not, we're not honoring that. And then she also managed a very, like the biggest mixer in England at that time, Mark Spike Stent, you know him? Yeah. And he, and he said, oh, because I, we went back to when he was an assistant engineer and I was playing drums. And uh, he's a super nice guy. And he said, tell Ireland I'll never mix anything for them if they don't sort this out with Mark. And all of a sudden, I got my points and, and the production. <laughs> so that was good but anyway um so we yeah we we did work we went to spain for three months and worked in nana cherry which was we did some fantastic stuff and the crazy thing was that tricky's this was like july august september i was in spain and tricky's record didn't come out until the following year and then when it came out everybody wanted to be a part of you know have a piece of tricky to be associated with him. Um, and we'd already, Nana already had a, an album in the bag and her husband manager decided to scrap it all. And so she could have been the first person to have something out with Tricky and, and it didn't happen, which was a real shame. And it was really interesting because Nana's much more pop. Yeah. And, but we had the sort of weirdness of Tricky, his involvement, I did a lot more writing and sometimes Eagle Eye Cherry was, was there too in Spain. He came for a bit and he's an amazing keyboard player and musician. And he added some great stuff too. And it really could have been a really great record, you know, with Tricky and Nana. And, and only a couple of songs came out. Um, and then the, the, husband manager suddenly had his writing credit on there which was weird considering he wasn't even in the room when we were writing um well, there you go just another whole there's a whole story to book to be written yes. about tricky in spain <laughs> um, like tricky was there he was about the only black guy around and he's driving around on mopeds smoking spliffs with his like you know shaved head and a ring through his nose talk about sticking out like a sore thumb the um i'll just tell you the second night we were there or maybe even the first night i'd driven down from england uh with my car full of gear because i had to take all my stuff so i couldn't really fly it and i persuaded the record company to, to pay for me to stay in hotels on the way down so i had a really nice drive through france and spain and um 
so we went out the, either the first or the second night we went out uh, with a jamaican guy that had worked who was basically like cameron the uh, husband of nana's bodyguard because he was always mouthing off and getting into trouble so he needed a bodyguard um and so we went out to dinner and when we came back we pulled in it was dark we pulled into the hotel which was inland from malaga there was nothing going on there there were a lot of it wasn't even proper roads it was dirt tracks and we were staying tricky and i was staying in this little hotel and we pulled in the drive and then all of a sudden there was like three rows of headlights switched on blocking our way and then you know after you've been blind you realize there's guys with guns standing in front of the cars and they're waving at us and it was it was like the drug the drug force of Malaga, you know, or um, Alurin Al Grande, where we were staying. And they're yelling at us to get out of the car. Like, you know, because we were so, you know, tricky, you know, like they must have just like, oh my God, there's a guy, there's a black guy here. Quick, call the police. And, and so they're trying to search, you know, they, they want us out of the car. They're looking for drugs. And I'm thinking, oh my God. Well, of course, Tricky's got drugs on him. He's never not got drugs so i was thinking oh shit you know we're in trouble and i'm worried and then when we're out of the car i'm thinking oh god as if he stashed it in my car i'm the one who's going to get into trouble so we're all standing outside with hands up you know guns pointing at us and these guys look really rough they've got gold teeth they look like pirates they you know they're not you know not like in, sort of polite english police and they're like droga droga and they've got dogs and the dogs immediately go their noses straight to Tricky's pockets. So they tell him to un un pull out the stuff of his pockets. And he's got all the paraphernalia, everything but the drugs. And, and then he starts giggling. And the Jamaican guy is saying, Tricky, this is not the time. This is the, these guys are not kidding. Do not, this is not funny, Tricky. And they're saying to him, they keep talking to him in Spanish and Tricky's <laughs> like semi laughing going i don't know what you're talking about why didn't you speak in english i have no idea what you're saying and and i'm thinking we're gonna get shot you know oh we're all gonna end up in jail now we've only been here for two days or one day and then um and then uh they finally can't find anything they search my car my car the back of my car is full of bubble wrap which they get really excited about and then they're like pulling the bubble wrap out, which I'd wrap my gear in. Couldn't find anything. And then they go and Tricky, the whole time he's had his hand up, he's got a ball of dope in his finger like this. So the dogs can't, they're not smelling it up, up there. And he's just like laughing hysterically. So that was that was our introduction to being in, in rural Spain. Bloody hell, that is quite, because that's quite amazing, because you had your early moments with Valentine, didn't you? And then Tricky. Yeah. Did you ever sort of think, Christ, I do, I guess it's the gig, isn't it? It's being in the music industry. Oh, yeah. I mean, what, what you mean, the diversity of what you're working on, you mean? Well, it's like also the extreme characters, you know, oh. like Valentine to Tricky to, I mean, totally different, but the same insanity almost. Oh yeah, there's just, I mean, it's almost like every, there's, I mean, I could count the number of people that weren't insane, you know, much easier than the people who, who were insane. I mean, like, you know, Ian McCulloch was a crazy, um, uh, 
you know, the, I mean, Naina was really was really nice, and and that was fantastic working with her. Um, she was absolutely amazing, a really nice person. But then her husband was the insane one in that scenario. Mm. I mean, he he was. We basically had two drug cocaine dealers living in the same hotel as me and Tricky, and like Cameron was his main was the main customer. And the, the woman who there was a woman, a couple from the Bronx, weirdly, who ran this hotel. And I remember the woman saying the the drug dealers had told told them they were Bible sellers. And and she said to me one day, I don't understand if they're selling Bibles, why they need oxyacetylene kits, because they were basically welding drugs into cars and sending them to England. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't make up stuff like this, can you? Um, and then Cameron used to deny he did drugs to me because he knew I hated coke. So he used to he used to deny it. He would do it at the table at dinner. The next day he'd say to me, "Do you see those guys taking drugs?" And I'd say, "Yeah, but you did as well." No, 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 no. It was ridiculous. He it was just the most insane thing. And then I, and then Naina, I'd ask where Cameron was, and Naina say, "Oh, he's gone to the." He's gone to his doctor. He's having heart palpitations. I'm like, no, <laughs> no <laughs> shit, really? Yeah, I wonder what that would be. Yes. And, and in three months, I never saw him eat once. He used to come to restaurants and sit there with his leg, like you know, his leg bouncing up and down and going, um, I've, I've just got to pop out. So that was, you know, that was insane. But so after Nana. We did that, and that was really, I was really upset that we, he, we came back to England to mix it, and we were in the middle of mixing the first or second song, and, and Cameron um, McVeigh came in and said, no, nah, I don't think it's the right material. I'm like, oh, my God, could, could you have not thought about that, you know, two months ago in the middle of the record? So he pulled the, he pulled the uh, plug on us, and that, oh, that led to a tricky track, because we had a track that we'd, we'd made a track, and Nana hadn't sung on it and Tricky Tricky was really pissed off because he didn't like Cameron at all anyway and um, he said um, here what's that track that we never used I'm going to call my manager and book the studio upstairs because I said I, I just want to finish this mix because we we paid the day's paid for anyway let me just finish it Yeah. and so I'm going to put here, give me that have you got it have you got it give me it so he goes upstairs he books the studio and a couple of hours he calls martina to come and sing and a couple of hours later he comes down and he goes mark you gotta come and listen to this it's wicked so we'll go upstairs and and i remember the, the track was good i was thinking wow maybe this will you know this will be good this will be like a you know a cool track for tricky and i've got publishing on this one because we'd arranged the publishing before i started working with nana and tricky and uh, i go up and he plays it and the first the words are first lyrics are uh, that she sings is um i'll fuck you up the ass just for a laugh with my quick speed i'll make your nose bleed and i was thinking oh there goes the single <laughs> it's not going to be a hit single but it was all about it was all about cameron basically um and that came out that then i didn't even know that it was going to be on maxine k until i heard i saw a review in the in the um one of the magazines track by track review and i was like oh crap if i don't know it then nobody else knows you know that i wrote on this probably and sure enough tricky had, had failed to mention that i was like a co-writer and you know so 
I did get publishing on that song on Max and K, but um, I didn't get the credit because they'd already printed the, you know, done the artwork. So, yeah. um, anyway, that was that. So, uh, but then after Tricky, all of a sudden I had all these people who wanted to be Tricky, you know, wanted to be like Tricky. There was, you know, everybody was, and then record labels would say, oh, I've got a band you're going to really love. Um, you know, it's just like Tricky. And I was like, I don't even know if I want to, I didn't really want to do another Tricky record because that was definitely not my thing. That was really painful for me to work on a record that there's hardly any musical hooks or anything. And I'm tr desperately trying to make them. That's not me. And even I got a call from the guy from Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, who my manager said he wants to talk to you about making a record. And I thought, oh, that might be cool. And And then it turns out that, you know, he said to me, um, well, he showed up, he, sh he walked in the room with a business suit and a briefcase. And he just didn't look music biz at all. And he opened his briefcase and he's got The Economist in there and, you know, some other stuff that didn't look very rock and roll. And he said to me, yeah, I really love the Tricky record. I want to make a record like that from the streets. And I was thinking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he went on a bit and I said, actually, you know, I'm going to stop you there because you've really got the wrong guy, you know, because I'm, I'm not the one who's going to make you from the streets. I'm the one who made Tricky palatable to the Western ear, you know, like, you know, without, you know, if, one, if I did one thing with Tricky, it was make it a little bit more hooky enough to get on radio. Yeah. So I said, if you want to do that, you really need to go and see Tricky. So I, I turned him down. He was, he was very upset about, and then I, I saw him like the, two days later at Alison Moyer gig and he kind of glared at me but um so then and then Kathy Dennis wanted to work with me you know Kathy Dennis yes from Norwich oh is she yes huh? well so Kathy you know at the time she hadn't had a record out in you know she'd had one record I think really that was she had a big hit and she was like you know like the English Madonna at the time right yeah and she quite a big hit and she'd lived off that and she was i think she was kind of running out of money and um so she wanted she wanted to do you know i want to do something more tricky so we worked in my studio and we wrote and that was she's an amazing writer absolutely amazing writer like i could be tuning the, the guitar and she'd start singing a brilliant melody over it i mean it was ridiculous like but everything she did was so pop so it was a bit frustrating because she would then go, oh, no, it's too pop. And I'd be thinking, oh, my God, it's a brilliant pop record. Yes. And so um, I did that. And that, that was it was pretty good. It's not a bad record, but um, it was sort of in between. You know, it wasn't really like tricky because she wanted to be like an indie artist. And I thought you, it's hard to be an indie artist when you've had a, you know, you've kickstarted your career as like, a Madonna thing but then um of course she went on to write massive hits for Spice Girls and Kylie uh, Kylie yeah and um so then um Cindy Lauper called you know I got my manager said Cindy Lauper wants to meet you she loves the tricky record I'm thinking blimey what is what is up with these people so um with uh, Cindy, she wanted to fly, you know, fly me 
first class out to the States. So I'm like, well, of course I'm going to go. Yes. And I went out and um, went up to a fantastic country house outside, you know, up, upstate from, from Manhattan. And um, so she had some, she had some really good demos and that were quite poppy. And but she was telling me how she, she loved the tricky record, wanted to do something. She wanted to be more of an indie artist. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> and um, uh, so then, um, you know, I figured out that it wasn't going to be easy. And I told her, I always work with this particular assistant because so, she wanted me to go and work in the States. And I said, I, I really need to bring my assistant. And I'd worked with one guy once and I, this one guy that I particularly I worked with once in the studio I liked and I said hey do you want to come to New New York to to make a record and he's like yeah sure so I took my ally with me because I felt like I'm going to need to vent to somebody it can't be all her people you know yes um and she she said I don't want to do a record in Manhattan I've done all my records in Manhattan in right you know like Electric Lady then famous really expensive studios and i said well i've just been in spain and we basically rented um a barn from a farmer for 30 pounds a week and we and i took my gear down and um it was great you know the, all the vocals were done outside because there was nothing occasionally you might have to stop because a moped mm. two miles away was making a noise but nana sang mostly under under grapevines and uh, it was fantastic and she was like oh yeah i love that idea and then when I when I ended up in the States, her her translation of that was a 12 acre estate, this massive mansion with an indoor pool and a private chef. And um, she also said, I want to use an old board um, mixing board. Yes. That are, you know, you don't really need to do that these days because, you know, they've they're really hard to maintain but you can buy the bits that you want the bits that make the sound that are kind of put into racks and you can, you can rent them and they'll, they'll be the reliable bits without all the faders and stuff, which break down. And she's like, Oh, okay. And then when I get there, there's the, this massive old board that Jethro Tull used to record Aqualung. <laughs> and so everything I said was totally ignored. And, um, and that was that turned out to be a nightmare. It was never working properly. There was people, when I arrived in America, people were there with soldering irons trying to get it to work, and um, that was that was a crazy experience. That was the most crazy experience I've ever had, and and one that may I, I the only reason I got through that record was that I decided I wasn't going to go back to England. I was going to have a break. I didn't even know whether I ever wanted to go into the studio again after about halfway through that record. And, and my only way to get through it was I went, I used to I'd go out to escape because it was quite remote where we were. I'd go to a local supermarket and pick up where they have like these magazines of free cars. And I saw these like camper vans and I thought, oh, what if I get a camper van, just drive around the States? So I ended up buying a camper van. And I thought, you know, in my head, like, okay, the camper van's in the drive, it's all packed. And as I'm pulling the fader down on the last mix, it, the engine's on, I'm like, boom, I'm off. And uh, that's kind of what I did. I took six months off and drove around the States muttering to myself, trying to get over that record. Yes. Because it was, 
it was particularly crazy um, because she, you know we had she had these good demos and good hooks but basically wanted to undo all of that uh so it was a real fight to keep anything hooky and um uh it was it was really um traumatic and at one point i thought i was gonna have to send my assistant home in a in a body bag because he was he he you know, I, didn't, I didn't think he was gonna make it through the album like one she was yelling at me one day and he she left the room and he just burst into tears you know he wasn't even one being yelled at um because she did a lot of a lot of yelling and uh and i was like oh you know don't worry it'll be okay and then she walked back in the room and he's still crying and she went up to him and went hey man what's the matter is it your girlfriend and he's like leave me alone <laughs> Uh, and then uh, we were in this gorgeous place that was a billionaire's enclave, basically, in upstate New York. It's called Tuxedo Park. It's where the tuxedo was in, the word tuxedo came from. And it was, a, it was set up by some people in the early 1900s with, you know, excessive amounts of money. And they wanted, they wanted to have a place outside the city, but they didn't want to mix with normal people. So they bought like hundreds of square miles of land, put a wall around it, had their own police force, and then invited people that they thought appropriate to build within it. Like, you know, there were no Jews, no foreigners, um, no nobody in the entertainment world. Um, it had to be proper old school American money. And mm. um, so there were massive, there was one massive, replica of a french chateau that had 25 rooms for servants this is like mega mega money we're talking about but it was it was the sort of the landscape was like the lake district and um there was a lake in the middle and i to get away from because we're in a residential studio there's no escapes not like you go home and forget your work for the, yeah. the rest of the, you know, one time I woke up in the morning, we'd work till four in the morning and I woke up about 11, I opened the door and Cindy was up right outside my bedroom door and just started yelling at me. And I just slammed the door and went, okay, I'm not going out for a while. <laughs> so, so I started running and um, I was like, I'm, I'm going for a run. And I started running and then a couple of days later, she's like, I want to come running too. And I'm like, <laughs> oh. So then I got faster and faster. So I physically, by the end of the record, um, I was pretty fit, physically fit, mentally shot. In fact, actually, I just, I found this the other day and I printed, uh, this was uh, from a cover of um, um, EQ magazine. And it was like a, a, the front cover, she was on the front cover. This was like the, the first page of our article. And the t see my t-shirt I'm wearing? metal mental mental <laughs> but i think i think the guy who wrote this or the girl liana if you read the top bit so she's still and then the next bit down is my t-shirt mental i really think she was in on that uh in on that joke yes um so then uh then I ended up living in the States. That's how I ended up living in the States, basically. I did, I did a, you know, I met well, uh, my ex-wife uh, towards the end of Cindy's record and then uh, took six months off. And then 
found a new manager in England. I mean, sorry, a new manager, an English manager, but based in LA, and um, said, you know, I want to stay here and do work. And yes, and then, and then he said that he came up with David Byrne as my first artist uh, that he found me, and I was thinking, oh crap, you know, another '80s mega icon. I was really not not that excited. I just thought. You know he could be a major egomaniac um but he was as it turns out he was like the polar opposite he was the like the nicest guy i'd ever worked with so it was it was nice that i got that gig um mixing a record with him um he yeah. was just amazingly humble and um not precious about his art because he had so many things going on um it made me realize that you know, Cindy was concentrating on her career. There was nothing else in her life apart from her career. And then, you know, she's she's 40 something at that point. Um, and probably, you know, worrying about her career. And David's like the opposite, you know, he's 40 something at that point probably. And um, he's got, he's doing installations in art galleries. He's doing photography, he's writing and music's just one of the things you know and it's, it's quite a major thing but he didn't he didn't um he wasn't just wasn't precious about it and he was really fast and and just wanted to get on get on with it and, and he he never wanted to spend more than three days on a song and the mixing was was really you know easy mixing for him but yeah. make more song more songs in a day than i mean you know Sometimes you spend a week on a mix and I'd mix like three songs in a day with him sometimes. And um, he would just say, do you want me on, on the first day? He said, I don't know how you want to work. Do you want me to be here or do you want me to go off and then come back and give you some time? And I said, I think it's better that the artist is not always there listening and listening to this over and over and over again until they're fed up with the song. It's yeah. better for you to fresh. And he said, well, that's good because I've got a guitar lesson and I've got opening an art gallery in Connecticut and, and he had all these things. And I thought, wow, you're doing guitar lessons? This is David Byrne, you know. Um, so he was so uh, energetic and alive. And he was constantly out what, uh, seeing bands all the time. Um, and then that actually, you know, that album led, led to me mixing an artist called Jim White, who was signed to David oh, Byrne label. Yes. I from remember. Lower Yeah. yeah he, He's fantastic. And he used to say, I'm from L.A., Lower Alabama. He was like a real character, Southern character. And um, he told me all these great stories about David, too. Um, like he was on tour with David and David would be. He said every time David gets to a, a new town, new city where they're playing, he always had a bike. Like even in Manhattan, he, everywhere he goes on this crappy bike that nobody's going to bother stealing. Yeah. And uh so he'd take that bike with him and he'd drive he'd ride to the record shops in town wherever they were and walk in and say okay give me five albums that i won't know in local local bands so he was constantly searching for new stuff which remind you know i think that's kind of like madonna and bowie were both king you know king and queen of that of finding stuff and not getting stuck in a rut and constantly searching for the next thing that's going to move their career on 
And um, so David was like that. And he said that nearly every night David would be in the, in the front watching him and then often inviting him on stage. Um, and once I went to see David play a gig and he was outside. He was outside standing, smoking a cigarette with the people online to see him. And I just thought, how cool is that? I mean, you could see these people were like gobsmacked. They've come, they're standing to see, you know, this man. man. And he's just chatting to them. And then he's like, oh, well, I better go. I'll see you soon. <laughs> just like the, so, you know, you, you've just made like mega fans then, haven't you? You know, to yeah. do stuff. Uh, it was just super nice. So, and that is me in conversation with Mark Saunders. Um, a huge thank you for giving me another hour of your life there, Mark. Much appreciated. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do at C86 Show. And these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Anyway, big thanks, Mark. Have a great week. <laughs>